Welcome to the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene podcast. This week, we're joined with the wonderful Dr. Maura Flannery. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> I'm so excited. Um, I think I'll start by asking you to introduce yourself to the audience. Uh, I'm uh, Maura Flannery. I uh, taught biology for over 40 years at uh, St. John's University in New York. And then I retired six years ago and moved to South Carolina. And um, I've always been interested in the visual in uh, biology. And because it's biology is the most visual science, it's got so many things to see. And uh, in the last dozen years or so, I've become obsessed with plant collections, herbaria. And that's why I'm here. <laughs> yes, you um, have your new book out um, in the herbarium. Um, can I start by asking, um, do you have, have you ever done your own plant collections, like made your own small um, herbarium? Um, there are really two answers to that. One I completely forgot about until my sister has um, some of my mother's furniture, including she got her uh, bedroom set wholesale. I mean, everything, including everything that was in the drawers. And it's become like a magical bureau where she pulls stuff out. And several years ago, she pulled out this little booklet that I had made completely forgotten about it. Um, we went to Ireland. This was when I was about 12 years old. And uh, I pressed plants, just a few. Um, and I made a little booklet for my mother. And that's the last I remember of it. And my mother must have kept it. In an, she had it in an envelope, and my sister found it in the magic bureau. When I had, you know, by that time, it was maybe eight or nine years ago, I had gotten interested in plants, and I was really stunned <laughs> to, um, and quite pleased with myself <laughs> that I had done this. And uh, much more recently, when I got into herbaria, I got equipment and made some specimens, but I never really. Um, got into it sort of professionally where I have specimens in an herbarium. I've worked, I've volunteered an herbaria and I have mounted specimens and, um, you know, pasted the labels and the plants and everything in place. But um, no, I don't really have my own herbarium. That is such a magical story that that <laughs> it happened later, you know, in life. Have you been able to go back now that you work more with herbaria and identify some of the plants? I could. Well, there were only about four or five of them in my collection. And they were all sort of common, like wildflowers that I must have picked up along the way in, uh, you know, when we were traveling in Ireland. 
That's so beautiful. Speaking of kind of doing your own herbarium, um, if folks are interested in kind of starting their own um, plant collections, after all of the research that you've done, looking at historical samples and <laughs> ways that they were preserved, um, how do you how would you suggest that people start um, with some of the logistics of plant collecting? Well, I'm going to um, push a book that's not mine. <laughs> it came out about the same time. It's called Pressed Plants by um, Linda Lipson, L-I-P-S-E-N. She is curator of um, the herbarium at the Royal Museum in British Columbia. And it's a beautiful, it's a small book, and it's um, it's about making an herbarium. And it really, without getting too technical or turning people off with too many details, she hits all of the important points. So I would point people toward that. There are also, if you put how to press plants into the um, website, you know, into the search, you'll find all kinds of videos too, which are helpful. But um, this little book is great. We'll make sure to provide a link in the show notes to that text so that people can follow up and look <laughs> at it if they'd like. Um, in your, <laughs> no worries. In your book, I remember there was like a a big kind of red flag around scotch tape collections, like that people would use scotch tape to collect or to mount specimens. Um, what are some of the most difficult kind of materials that people have used to try and preserve things that end up actually destroying them? Um, well, scotch tape just leaves... Um... It's it after specimens can be around for hundreds of years if they are prepared properly. And the early specimens they used um, the animal glue, and that's still those specimens are still stuck to that paper. Um, but um, the um, scotch tape is the worst. Um, the uh, some people. Um, also are against, um, this was particularly common in Europe and really into the um, present day almost, to use pins, straight pins. And glue, the problem with glue is it's hard to get the plant up if you want to look at the other side of it or something. So pins or, or sometimes they would sew the specimens down, uh, but pins often get rusty. And so that becomes a problem. So there are, um, yeah, I'd say scotch tape is the, is the worst. And also um, the specimens have to be totally dry. So if there's any moisture in them, that can breed um, mold and that'll destroy the specimens. The three um, enemies of herbarium er specimens are uh, moisture, um, insects, and um, and also fire. 
that's the three things that, you know, kill them, literally. Yes. Um, that's good to know <laughs> for all of the people who are interested either in visiting an herbarium or starting their own. So that's yeah. why all the modern cabinets are made of metal and they have gaskets on them to seal, um, um, to seal them from insects getting in because they can do a job, particularly if a collection is not, you know, if a collection is used a lot and people are opening the cabinets, they'll see that there's something in there and they'll freezing the specimens will get rid of it. But if it's a collection that's just sitting there, they can munch away, you know. And um, so, yes, those are the three problems. We've been kind of talking about herbaria, but some of our, hopefully our listeners will be familiar with herbaria and what they are. Um, but for those who aren't, um, could you explain kind of, and you mentioned this in your introduction, how you first got interested in herbaria and um, what some of the kind of exciting and interesting things about herbaria are? See, the, the word herbarium um, is used a lot of different ways. It can mean a big collection like uh, New York Botanicals got like 8 million specimens. And it can also mean a um, the early herbaria were bound books or many of them were bound. Um, they would press the plant on a sheet of paper and then take all the sheets and bind them together. And it was a way, that's how a lot of these, the first herbaria from like the 1550s, and that's how some of the early ones, why they survived. A lot of them didn't, but um, having them bound made it more likely they would survive. But, um, so it can mean a, a lot of different things. They have been used by um, botanists, as basically as a documentation of the plant so that um, it's hard to keep living plants, particularly in the winter. And this was a way it was used. Um, the early ones were used for students studying medicine to learn how, you know, the medicinal plants. So they would take them into the, this is the guy who, his name was Luca Ghini, an Italian botanist. He, um, may not have made the first herbarium, we're not sure of who did, but he was one of the people who really sort of got it publicized in the botanical world because he had a lot of connections. And um, uh, he also created the first um, botanical garden at uh, Pisa, related to the University of Pisa. So uh, that was, those were the two, along with, um, this was also the time, this is a really, you know, the mid uh, 16th century was also when the first really good printed herbals came out with um, naturalistic uh, images of plants. And so the art, um, there was also a lot of paintings being done, documenting plants. 
because sometimes they would get these plants that were very rare and they would want to document them in as many ways as possible. And all of these we used, the text, the drawings, the uh, plants themselves, dry and living. So this sort of made, this is why I find it so fascinating because um, it's related to botanical art. And I've been always interested in how art and science um, go together. My, um, I taught biology, but I taught biology only to <laughs> non-majors. I was not teaching the upper crust. Uh, and I, I just loved it because I could do, um, I could be more experimental because I didn't have to worry about them getting every piece of information to go on. I wanted them more to um, have a better attitude. Many of them did not have a good attitude towards science and I wanted to give them a better attitude. And art was one of the ways I did that. And so, um, so that's how, um, but I really wasn't focused on plants. I was more into cells and molecules. And then um, I think it was uh, 2010, I was sort of inching my way toward plants, particularly through botanical illustration. And then I went to the botany meeting, it was in Providence that year, 2010. And um, I um, went on a tour of, they had tours in it. I went on a tour of the um, uh, Natural History Museum in Providence. And there was a curator there, uh, Marilyn Massaro, who took us down into the storerooms. And they had everything. They had birds, stuffed birds and skeletons and all that stuff. And then she had the herbarium. And I had heard the word. I knew what it was, but I had never really experienced it. It was a small collection. But aside from the plants, um, they are usually stored in metal cabinets. They are put in... Um, manila folders, uh, like a species, one species or one genus, depending upon how many you have, are put in a folder and they are, um, it's like a library for plants. They are, except that they're not kept like this, they're kept like this. Because uh, if you put them like this, pieces will drop off. So um, showed us the cabinets. And then she also had, this is Providence, so it's you know near the sea, and so they had um, a number of uh, seaweed collections that were in albums because it was uh, popular in the nineteenth century to press seaweeds, and um, they're just gorgeous. And uh, that was just it. I had to know more about herbarium. It was like falling in love. It really was. It was. Um, I just, that's all I could think about and talk about after that. And so that's how I, I got into it seriously. That's wonderful. And what a great, I don't know, the combination of art and science, like, and and thinking about it more as like an experience of love, like that just really resonates with me. You know, like when yes. art comes in, there's just something special about you know that information even though it's set up as more of a like 
we'll keep this information here, but it's it's something more than that once the art's involved. Yes, yes, for sure. And that's one of my, that before I got into herbaria, I did my dissertation on um, the aesthetics of biology. And so that's how I got into the art thing, but also, um, and I think it came out of um, trying to get um, students engaged with, um, with biology, that it's more than just facts, that it's part of our lives. And that it, um, I, I really credit my parents for uh, my sister and I are both teachers. And I don't think that that's a um, just happened because my parents, um, neither of whom were teachers, but um, they were always, when they'd read something, like they'd read a newspaper or they'd read something in a magazine and they'd say, oh, I just read about it. My mother was often stuff in the gossip column in the newspaper. But it was always um, like they were interested in it and they wanted to share that with somebody else. And I think that that's how I got into um, into teaching and then into writing because it's like I wanted to, I really love this stuff and I wanted to share it with other people. In terms of the research for this book, what was the most surprising thing that you found in the midst of your research? That's tough. Um, and I've come up with a couple of answers that have changed <laughs> um, in the course of thinking about it. I think the thing that has um, changed me the most is um, that as I got more and more involved with um, learning about the history of collections, the way I saw the book and my interest in Herbaria is having three parts. One was the history and the history of collecting plants, you know, the burgeoning number of plants that were discovered through explorations and so on. And then that they were so, they're pivotal to how we understand plants, you know, taxonomy and naming plants and um, just understanding how plants work. And now they're also at the cutting edge of technology because they're being digitized. The specimens are being digitized and they're used in a lot of biodiversity research. So they've got history, they've got science, they've got the future. So that's why I got, you know, hooked. But I think that what was most surprising to me was how much and I think this is becoming more and more clear as time goes on, um, how much they are related to social issues like um, decolonization and um, bringing out the stories of how indigenous people were used uh, to, to find plants how that record was um, not obliterated. I don't think it was obliterated. I think it was more that it um, 
was not considered important. So very often the records are there in notebooks and letters that explorers would send home and their journals, but when it didn't get into publications. And now um, in those lucky cases where we have the other documentation, now people are finally looking at those records and they very often cannot find, and sometimes they do find the names of the people involved, but through what they have written, it becomes much more obvious how much indigenous people's knowledge. First of all, if you're an explorer from Europe and you're a little used to one kind of ecosystem, and then you go to a tropical area and there is nothing there. I went to Australia a few years ago where you know the plants are totally different. And anytime I recognized a plant, you know, like finally I would see something that I recognized. And it was an invasive. You know, it wasn't some, oh, that's just a weed, that's just such and such, you know, from Europe and so on. And so they were going into places they didn't know anything. And so the only, they were looking for medicinal plants. How would they know what was a medicinal plant? And then so, or how, what was, uh, could be eaten or what could be used as fiber or whatever. They had to get all that information from the people they were meeting. And also the people they had hired to carry their luggage and, um, figure out paths about how to get from here to there because they had, you know, it was literally a blank slate, especially in the early years. And so um, I think that's what I found. That's what changed me the most and changed my perspective on things the most. Yeah. It, I remember um, for part of my research for my dissertation, um, I had, come across some of John Bartram's writing because I did my PhD in Philadelphia. And so whenever Bartram would pop up, I would um, look more into it. Um, and yeah, his journals, the the things that he's written about, like the like the traveling that he did, it's got so much more information about relationships I was really surprised by how much they're talking about like oh this person from this group did you know and a lot of indigenous folks um helped them a lot um and and that's true I mean we're lucky to have those kind of records and even that it's still you're still looking at it from a white man's perspective but um excuse me <laughs> But um, yes, um, and that um, that's changing. The same thing is true with um, the role of women. You know, that was sort of reduced, you know, hidden. And but in many cases, the women themselves, there were women in England who were doing in the... It, 18th and 19th century, who were doing really serious investigations of plants and sending them to botanists. And sometimes the botanists would say, oh, please write this up and I'll get this published. 
And they would say, no, no, that's not what an upper class woman does. Just you, you use it. And, and so, um, so I don't want to put men as the, the villains in this, or in some cases they could be, but um, it, it was the um, entire milieu and um, they were the ones that were writing for the public. This is another one of my sort of basic ideas is that, and I came across this relatively early. Um, there was a book by um, Gerald Holton and it's about um, the private side of science that, you know, there's what gets published and then it's what really happens in the lab or out in the field, you know, wherever. And uh, because what gets published is what goes into people's public perception of science, they don't realize how exciting it can be because that's, you know, putting in a paper, wow, I discovered the structure of DNA. You know, that paper was just like boring. Um, but um, but they, um, and or the difficulties, you know, the many things that go wrong before one thing goes right. And that's what I find, that's what I could get my students interested in because it was like human stories. And that's also um, why I liked like a barrier because even one specimen can have a bunch of different stories associated with it. Yes, and I was really struck in your book how many of those stories have been lost and kind of how exciting it is to like happen upon one that you can kind of follow the trail of. Yes. And I think that's why um, they're becoming better known now because people are, historians are getting interested in them. Is there any figure that um, really stood out to you? Because your book covers an incredible, it's just so incredibly rigorous and robust. Like, I feel like this is just a great, um, a great source for people who are interested more in the history of Herbaria, but also thinking about the future, like you had said before, like what the past the present science and then, you know, looking towards the future um, might be, um, were there, was there a particular figure who stood out to you as either interesting or particularly impactful? Gee, I, <laughs> or even, I don't want to offend anybody, but not that. <laughs> Mentioning them, um, I <laughs> think um, the, the um, one who I'm uh, obsessed with at the moment um, is a very early. I've gotten very interested in early modern because that's when the that's when it all started, and that's also a world of images. Uh, I mean, the, the illustrations were particularly important then because the language of botany hadn't really developed. They, they didn't know the difference. They, they didn't have the words genus and species 
they didn't have words to describe the different parts of a flower. So the um, images, some of them are really realistic, um, but um, they were they were much ahead of the text, essentially, for the first century or so. And there was a guy named Carlos Clausius, who was French-Dutch, um, and um, he just had um, a tremendous impact. I started out sort of with the Italians, and they're a great group, too. And then uh, this uh, Swiss guy, Gessner, who did amazing notebooks. But um, the more I read about Clausius, he sort of gotten under my skin because he he was interested in all, all aspects of botany. And he communicated, they have a lot of his letters, which is why he's known. And um, he, he communicated, he wrote to anybody who, who could write. So, um, and he got a lot of information from people who couldn't. You know, he would go on field trips and, and talk to women who were uh, gathering herbs for um, pharmaceuticals, you know, herbalists um, and farmers and everybody. And he had, but he also had connections at the very top. He worked for the um, Habsburgs uh, for a number of years. And so he, he was really at all echelons and, um, and worked really hard to acquire information. And so he keeps, you know, he, he was sort of in the back of my mind and he gets sort of gets keep pushing up. And the Bartrams too um, are, um, and there was a, and I'll just mention one more. Um, he's not a big figure, but I, I sort of have delved a little bit into him. And that made me realize there are a lot of people like him who could benefit from more investigation. His name was William Darlington. He was in Westchester, Pennsylvania. He was sort of the spearhead behind uh, Natural History Society in Westchester. And his herbarium is now at the university there. And he's got some old specimens. And he's got, for example, specimens that were grown from seeds that Lewis and Clark brought back, that type of thing. So he's connected. Um, he co collected stuff at Bartram's garden. This is later than John and William Bartram. It's like early um, to mid um, 19th century, but um, he had a a um, genus of plants named after him, which was a whole big deal because uh, a couple of botanists named plants after them, but then it turned out they weren't really new genus or new species. So they kept taking plants away from them. <laughs> and so he finally, um, uh, John Tory and Asa Gray were the big botanists of that era. And um, they got together and Tory named this beautiful pitcher plant from California after him. And um, and he was very honored, but he was a little worried <laughs> that that wouldn't stick. And that's um, 
uh, etched into his gravestone, the uh, picture of the um, Don and Tony. I was wondering, so you had mentioned briefly in your answer to that question, um, the role of some like women healers or kind of maybe people who weren't as professionalized, but were in tune or connected to medicinal practices with plants. Um, as I read your book, I thought it was really interesting how herbaria kind of take that medicinal turn towards more professionalization, if that makes sense. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk more about, was that the case? How tied were herbaria and the kind of more I don't know if upper class is the right way, but professional class study of plants connected to developments in medicine. And what was that relationship then with kind of traditional on the ground herbalists? To me from, you know, I'm not an expert on this, but to me it, it varied quite a bit. I think there were a lot, again, this is like the indigenous people. You know, they use that information, but they didn't necessarily say where they got it from. And um, and some of them looked down on that kind of um, data and um, others made real use of it. And they had to, because that's, that's how they learned things. And um, a lot of the, um, Within the like apothecaries too, the apothecaries were a big part of development of herbaria. Um, it was physicians and apothecaries that um, really made the. If you if you look even well into the nineteenth century, a lot of the botanists were trained as doctors, and that's because uh, materia medica, you know, studying plants and other minerals and whatever the animal materials that were used in making medicines that was part of the study of medicine and it was a big part of it and so all the most of the botanists an awful lot of them and and a lot of them the people who had the time to go around uh, collecting and studying plants were upper class people and a lot of the upper class people, there was a guy named Hans Sloan who was a, he was both a physician and a apothecary. And he um he had upper class connections, but then he married money. Um a woman who owned slaves plantations with slaves. You know, there's there's that kind of a background in a lot of these situations. That's only now, you know, sort of being realized. But um, he collected collections. He bought or people gave him or he traded um, collections. And he's, his collections, it's 265 volumes and it's in the um, Natural History Museum in London. So that's one of the big old collections. And he was definitely upper class. And a lot of the people um, 
he dealt with were upper class because they could afford to do this. And, um, but it was also, um, and Asa Gray was known for this, and a lot of the botanists had connections with like women who had um, immigrated to the United States or to, or to America before there was in the United States or to Australia and or anywhere where they could communicate and get plants from other places. So, um, of course, this is presuming that the people are, are literate enough to be able to write that kind of thing. So that in itself is sort of a, an issue, but yes, it's, um, and and you again once you get into the, I mean I did, haven't done a lot of um, archival research on this, but once you get into the archives and you start reading letters that they're sending to each other, they'll say, "I found this out from you know a woman I met such and such, or a guy I met." There was um, yeah, so it's um. It's complicated. Something you cover in the book is citizen science. And I think it's really popular right now, but it's also like an incredibly underutilized tool, <laughs> I think, for a lot of folks. Um, how do you have any resources for listeners who might be interested in connecting with science, citizen science initiatives around herbaria? Um, I have a, I have a few. Um, there's sort of the big ones, and and the one once you get into them, you can sort of dig and find a spot for yourself. Um. They now, um, some people don't like the term citizen science. There's a lot, you know, as any field develops, it sort of goes off, you know, people have their own ideas and things. And citizen science also can mean like advocacy and um, that type of thing. The way I used it mostly, they now call it community science too. Um, this idea of people volunteering to um, to do something for plants. And some people work in uh, gardens and um, uh, there's a, a garden down in uh, on the coast in uh, South Carolina, Brook Green Garden, which is a huge a former, several former plantations put together. Um, but um, there are hundreds of people who volunteer there and um, in various projects, restoration of land as well as keeping the gardens up and so on. So you can do physical work or um, there are also um, two big websites. The, the biggest, um, the one that's... I'm most familiar with, it's called Notes from Nature. And it's, um, you can go in there and you can find all kinds of projects where they're digitizing either collections or notebooks 
and um, you can it's 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 very well done and you can get sucked into it because they have what they call um, explorations where they will be looking at one particular type of plant or plants from one particular expedition or plants from one particular area. So you sort of get, and, and that's the idea. If, if you're doing something um, without getting paid for it, you need some kind of um, interest in it and um, commitment to it. And so the, this has been around for, you know, 10 years or more now, and it's really been sort of fine tuned. So notes from nature, there's another one. And it also comes in different names. Like these things are big portals and then there are little portals behind it. There's something else called Digivol, which comes out of uh, Australia. The Australians were very early into digitizing plants because they got such a tremendous <laughs> biota. And, um, you know, they're very much into conservation and, and preservation of their species. So those are two big ones. And then the other one that everybody is interested in is iNaturalist, which is where you can put in, you can take pictures of organisms, put it, you can get them identified and um, put them in. I saw this here on this day. And there is so much information. There are now, I think, billions of um, observations that they are, it's not really press plants, but they are now trying to connect some of those observations to the uh, herbarium specimens that are online. Um, so that um, this is sort of like the next big thing is to connect the herbarium specimens to other kinds of information about the species, ecological, genetic, DNA sequencing, and so on. And so uh, those three are, are big sites that um, facilitate that. If people want to follow your work, are there good sources for that? Um, I have a blog and um, it's called Herbarium World. And I post once a week on something to do. It usually has something to do directly with herbaria. Sometimes it's uh, it's about plants anyway, you know, if, if it's not totally tied to a barrier. And that's been my way. Uh, I used to write articles for American biology teacher for years. Um, and that was my way of sort of downloading information that I couldn't, uh, you know, you could, there's only so much you can give your students. So this is a way for me to, again, share what I had learned. And then um, when I got obsessed with uh, herbaria, I gave that up because I figured they didn't want to hear about plants every month. And, um, and then I started this blog and I like doing it. Great, we'll, we'll make sure we provide a link to that as well in our show notes. Um, Thank you so much, Maura. I'm so this is I'm just so thrilled to get to talk with you on the podcast. Um, our paths had crossed a few times prior to this, but it's just so lovely to talk with you more about your your book, which we'll make sure to also provide links in the show notes for. <laughs>
Well, um, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene. If you're interested in learning more about our group, feel free to find us at networkingwithplants.org or email us at networkingwithplants at gmail.com. Until next week, start thinking about your local plants. Take care. Music piece is kindly offered to us by artist Mylise. Mylise is a sonic artist, immersive ecology designer, and clean energy ambassador. Merging art and technology, she creates music experiences that express the voices of plants and the other inhabitants of the earth.